Now in Matthew 6.33, Jesus teaches his disciples that they are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, Jesus taught his disciples that they were to prioritize living for God and, and seeking after the things that God calls them to pursue. It really, it's just an application of the greatest commandment, which Jesus said was what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. It, all, those are, all those different ways are, are emphasized to say that you are to love God with everything you have. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are called to live your life for Christ in whatever sphere God has called you, whatever career God has called you to. You are to live for the glory of Christ in in however he's he's uh, in whatever sphere he's saved you in. And and Paul summarizes this this priority succinctly in Galatians two twenty. Just listen as I read Galatians two twenty, where Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was certainly a person who lived a Christ-oriented life. And this morning we're going to start looking at another person who lived a Christ-oriented life, and that is the person of Philemon. His life was totally focused on bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Paul's commendation of Philemon, we, we see strategic life commitments that, that Philemon lived out so that he could live a Christ-oriented life. And this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 3 to three to 7. We're actually going to make it to, to verse 5. But the verses 3 to 7, we see we see five strategic life commitments that I want to point out to you that, that, that enabled Philemon to live a Christ-oriented life for the glory of Jesus Christ. And before we dig into it, let's just read the letter of Philemon. And it's, it's so short, I'll just read the whole letter. But uh, keep in mind, we'll be looking primarily at verses uh, four, five, 3, 4, 5, and 6, or 3, 4, and 5 today. We'll look at 6 and 7 next week. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but is now useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will." 
for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, but if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, I will repay it, not to mention to you that, that you owe me owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Well, this morning we're going to dig in to beginning of verse three to, to see that Philemon lived a life full of grace and peace. And this is really Paul's Paul's greeting uh, here in verse three, which is really its own statement in and of itself. But we didn't talk about it last week, and so. I, it was so rich, I wanted to include it in our discussion and study this week. Paul mentions grace and peace in the introduction of all 13 letters that bears his name. Uh, grace and peace, uh, particularly the grace and peace of God, are, are really uh, hallmarks of Paul's ministry. These are truths that permeates li- uh, Paul's life and theology and his letters. Paul wrote and prayed that God's grace and his peace would permeate the lives of those to whom he wrote. In this case, he, uh, to those, particularly Philemon, but also to those mentioned, Aphia and um, Archippus and to the church in their house. Paul replaced the common greetings in, in letters of that day. Letters of that day would, would start out with something like greetings. They'd put it in Greek, but it would just be greetings. They would state who the letter is from, who the letter is to, and then greetings. And Paul took out that just replaced that that common word greeting with this phrase grace and peace. And at times he elaborates and it's a little longer, and other times it's a little shorter. But in all thirteen letters he places that greeting, grace and peace, in there. And in both letters to Timothy, Paul adds and mercy as well. Now grace and peace are such common features of of Paul's introductions, that it's tempting just to quickly read by them without even thinking about it. Sometimes we just read by these things, not pausing to reflect upon them as inspired text from God. And and some people spend about as much time thinking about this as they do the little word greetings or dear in our English letters. You know, dear, you know, put your name in there. You know, dear Mark, do you contemplate that dear? Well, you do if the person who is writing it is is a loved one right and so from that standpoint it's not meaningless you 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 might just assume it's just part of standard letter form and you not might not put anything in it but it does mean something and so the the paul's wish and prayer that the grace and peace of god uh, would be upon philemon and, and those that he's writing to is is not it's not empty um we should make the mistake of just blowing by it Paul could have admitted these references. He could have done away with that part at all, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote them. 
So I just want to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at what it means, what grace and peace mean. What is grace? Well, grace is a translation of the Greek word charis, right, which can be translated as favor or gift. Uh, Paul's, Paul's uses, Paul uses the word in reference to God's gift, God's goodwill, his loving kindness. Uh, by grace, God gives us what we do not deserve. It's, it's mercy that doesn't give us what we do deserve, but it's his grace that gives us what we do not deserve and could not earn. Remember that if we earn something, then that, that's given to us as a, as a wage. Romans uh, 4, 5, and Romans 4 talks a lot about that. That God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5 says. That's, that's a gift of grace right? that comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, God's grace is abundant and magnificent. Uh, some examples of this are, are, I think, profitable for us to read. So if you would, just turn in your Bibles. You may not even have to turn the page depending on, depending on your Bible layout. But go to Titus 2. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. These are clear examples of, of this, the meaning of, of grace as a, as a gift we could not earn. Look at, look at Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, Paul doesn't discount the need to exercise saving faith, but here the emphasis is on God's grace. It's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that transforms us. It's God's grace that makes us a, a people for his own possession, which means he has to purify us because God can't have fellowship with darkness. He can't have fellowship with sin. So we must be pure to have fellowship ultimately with God. That's God's grace. Look also at Titus 3, uh, verses. Uh, read verses 3 to 8. That shows us a little bit of contrast between what we deserve versus how the grace God gives us. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved with various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured down upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Though that, that really helps us understand that, that the salvation is a grace gift. It's not something we earn. And, and when Paul talks about grace, that's exactly what he's talking about. He doesn't give us all that detail. He simply says, grace and then peace. Right? And in a way, he's giving us all of his theology in, in the, this simple phrase, phrase, grace and peace to you. Right? That's Paul's theology. Great way to summarize the gospel. But, but what is peace? So grace is God's gift, primarily God's gift of salvation that we couldn't earn and don't deserve. But what is peace? Well, peace is the result of the grace of God. Uh, peace is not just the absence of war or turmoil or the absence of disharmony, 
Uh, one helpful explanation that I read noted that biblical peace represents not simply cessation of war, but all that makes for well-being and prosperity in the absence of war. I mean, we, we have an example of that even in Ukraine, how the war is going on. There are times when the war isn't, say, uh, hot on a particular city where the missiles aren't falling, but it's so. But they don't exactly have peace. Their lives, they cannot prosper. They cannot rebuild their homes and rebuild their buildings and, and plant gardens and, and pr- bring the crops in, right? Because there is not that, that kind of real lasting peace where, there's, where life can flourish. That's the kind of peace that God brings. Peace is not just a, an individual or inner peace, but also the social wholeness of harmonious relationships. And obviously, we experience that in a fallen sense here on earth, but, but God will, will, will restore those relationships and through the grace of God, bring about that, those kind of relationships, those perfect relationships, when we're glorified with him in heaven. The peace that results from God's grace, as one dictionary put it, is a tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. It, it, it is that soul assured of its salvation so that no matter what happens, you are not shattered. You, you don't go into a frizzy. You don't panic. You trust in the Lord. That's the peace. That's the peace that Stephen had as, the, as people picked up stones and began stoning him as he looked to heaven as a witness for Christ. He had absolute peace in the midst of a terrifying storm. That's the peace of God. And that's what Paul uh, prays for. And that's what Paul communicates the gospel for so people would have that peace. That, that peace is, is both peace with God and with others. For example, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that verse implies that if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, you are not at peace with God. And you might think you're at peace with God, but he's not at peace with you because of your sin. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to intervene, to be that intercessor, to, to be your go-between, to, to pacify and satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. Once the grace of God comes into your life through Christ, then, then you have peace with God. And in fact, Jesus wants his disciples not only have peace with God, but peace in this world. In John sixteen thirty three, he says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you, will, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So Christians don't need to fret when their tribulation comes. Jesus said it's coming. You're going to have troubles. Your body's going to fail. People are going to persecute you if you're a bold witness for Christ. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience trials. You're going to experience difficulties, some of your own making and some of them not of your own making. Jesus said in these things, if you focus on him with a Christ-oriented life, you will have peace despite all the difficulties and problems that you will experience in this fallen world. But where does this supernatural grace and peace come from? Well, Paul tells us, look at back at Philemon, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the source of grace and peace is ultimately God. Now, here, Paul attributes the source of grace and peace to God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Jesus taught his disciples 
to pray to the Father. When they asked him, Jesus teaches how to pray, he said, he, he said, uh, he taught them to teach, to pray our Father who art in heaven. And so really influenced by that, Paul quickly declares that God as our Father in this particular letter. He's wanting Philemon, wanting to remind Philemon of that loving heavenly relationship, um, that he now has through Christ with God our Father. He is the source of grace and peace, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. He is also uh, a source of grace and peace. So this indicates that grace and peace comes from God through our Lord Jesus Christ to all who are believed. As Romans 3.24 tells us, that all who believe are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The Father gives peace. The Son gives peace. He gives grace and peace. Uh, multiple verses just speak about the Son giving peace, um, grace and peace. But but notice that, that Scripture attributes grace and peace to God, who is our triune God. And although the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in these particular verses, we can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is also an agent, a source of, of grace and peace, which flows through us. He has to apply that to our lives. And I just want to note also that when Paul calls Jesus, he says the, he uses the title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't just calling Jesus master here. He, he, is, he is using the term Lloyd, the Lord to indicate his deity, which would be heresy and blasphemy if Jesus was not God. So you often have people, well, can, unbelievers will often challenge you to say, well, you know, they don't see that Jesus is God. It's everywhere in the New Testament. They're just blind uh, to see it. Right? Every time someone says the Lord Jesus Christ, so I shouldn't say every time because it depends on the context, but in many cases, when you see in the scriptures the Lord Jesus Christ, that term Lord is being used in the same way that the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, which in most English Bibles is translated the Lord with the capital, capital letters in there, he that is the way that they're using New Testament writers are using Lord in reference to Jesus. So they're drawing a direct lineage or a direct connection between the New and the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's the clear connection that the New Testament writers want us to to make. So this is an affirmation of deity. Now, why does Paul routinely open his letters with grace and peace? Well, he he regularly did this, and to to remind his readers of the grace and peace of God that, that should permeate their lives. You know, Paul wrote to Christians. There are, there are no letters to unbelievers. All these letters are to believers. So why would he remind those who've experienced grace and peace of God's grace and peace? Right? And, and the reason is because we need those reminders. The gospel, the grace of God, and the peace of God isn't just something we we um, need at the start of our Christian life. We do need them to start our Christian life, but it's something that should accompany us throughout our, our spiritual life. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves as Christians every day. Um, our existence and our life as Christians are dependent upon God's grace and his peace every single day. And the Apostle Paul craves for his readers to understand this. He craves for his readers um, to, to grow in the grace of God and the peace of God to receive all these spiritual blessings that they would be theirs and increasing. 
As one commentator explained it, grace and peace are a small sound bite version of Paul's gospel itself. So just in one small, short uh, sentence, Paul can give all his theology, pack it all in there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take take just a minute, pause a minute, to, to, to contemplate what some ways that we can apply this to ourselves. How does this, how does this, um, uh, how should this be applied to our lives? Well, first of all, our own salvation began with God's grace and that led us to the peace of God for all those who believe in him. But sometimes we need to be reminded that the grace of God uh, is there so that we don't trample on God's grace. As believers, we still struggle with sin. Right? As uh, I believe that Romans talks about in 7, about that there's that battle within us where we, we at times do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things that we want to do. Right? So we need the grace of God to remind us that yes, we're forgiven, but also we need the grace of God there to remind us to do what is right. The grace of God is not just, oh yeah, God forgives me, so I kind of live my life however I want. If you're thinking that way, I question whether you're even a genuine believer. That's trampling on the grace of God. Let me give you an illustration. I read this in John Christossom, one of the early uh, church fathers. But he was saying how, 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 it, how is it that a man can commit adultery before the eyes of God? God always sees what we're doing. But he has no questions at all. He doesn't even bat an eye. He'll com- go and commit adultery before the eyes of God. But if a, another person walks in the room, he'll instantly stop. Okay? Why? Because he's embarrassed. Well, the issue there is the fact that we do not fear God. And we're trampling upon the grace of God. And and we do that as Christians sometimes. We do things that if someone else were there or someone else knew our thoughts, we wouldn't think, we wouldn't do. But God knows our thoughts. God knows our actions. So so the grace of God isn't, isn't just to remind us that our sins are forgiven. They are. And that's a wonderful grace of God. But it's also there to remind us not to trample on it. Don't trample upon the grace of God. Yes, God's love is abundant. His grace is abundant. But we dare not trample on it. There is a sense in which if you trample on God's grace, that, that grace will prove vain in your life. It will not accomplish the purposes that God has intended it to be. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, um, Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. His grace toward me did not prove vain. In other words, that grace flowed into Paul's life and much fruit came out of Paul's life. And that's what grace is intended to do in our lives. Flow into your life and produce much fruit. Right? Not just be a dead end where, where, it's, where there's no fruit in your life or in other people's lives. That's when God's grace is vain. And the other thing, which I've kind of already mentioned, is that we need to keep applying the gospel to our lives. God's grace isn't just something we need in our salvation. It's something we need in our sanctification. We need God's grace to live daily for Him. His grace strengthens us. We we don't deserve the strength that the Holy Spirit provides us to do what is right. We don't deserve... The, the inspiration that the Holy Spirit gives us, the insight he gives us to help us understand his word. We need those. Those are graces. Don't presume upon the grace of God and just thinking, well, God owes you that. 
That daily grace is what you need. And we need to preach the gospel to ourselves about it, how, how God uh, overcomes our sins, that he is redeeming us, he's purifying us to be a people for his own possession. So in, in verse 3, we see a, a strategic commitment to, to allow your life to be full of grace and peace. The, the second life commitment comes from verse 4, and that is this. Live your life so that you multiply thanksgiving to God. Live your life so you multiply thanksgiving to God. Verses 4 to 7 uh, form one sentence. Or sorry, verses 4 to 6 run uh, form one sentence, both in English and, and in the Greek. And, in ver- and including verse 7, we have a unit of thought that takes us from the introduction into the real, like the, the main meat of the letter, the body of the letter. Now, now Paul wants to commend and encourage Philemon before he gets to his request. He wants to, he wants to reiterate to Philemon the things that he's doing right in order to spur him to continue on doing these things. And, and some might look at this as mere flattery. If these things were not true of Philemon, it would be flattery. It would be Paul's way of manipulating Philemon into doing what he wants him to do. But that's not what's going on here. The word of God is true and right. And these things that Paul talks about, uh, describes of Philemon, are really true. You Notice, uh, we'll, we'll get there, but notice in verse 5, he says, I hear of your love. Paul's not making this up. He had heard about these things. So the things we read are things that are actually going on in Philemon's life. Uh, as one of, the, um, one of the commentators observantly concluded, the Apostle Paul lauds Philemon for the precise characteristics that he will later desire him to express with regard to Onesimus. Right, you're going to see in verse 5, there's an emphasis that, of thanksgiving for Philemon's faith and his love. Well, faith and love are required to forgive Philemon. These things will be required. And in fact, it, it, it really helps us understand why Paul was so confident in Philemon's obedience because he knew, he had heard about Philemon's faith and love. And we'll say more about that in a moment. Verse 4 begins a long sentence in Greek that I, I mentioned, that mentioned that goes from verse 4 to verse 6. And some of the details are, are complicated in Greek. It's not, they're not complicated theologically, they're complicated grammatically. And, and uh, if you, one way that you can kind of detect that, that something like that is going on, even if you don't read Greek, is just to compare different versions of the English uh, text. Uh, that's why it's helpful sometimes to have different versions. If you typically read the New American Standard Bible, it's, it's good to have a different version, to, to sometimes compare it. But just listen as I read, and it'll, it'll show you um, I'm going to read several versions, and you can kind of read that there's um, some uh, the, the details, exact details of this are a little confusing to us, or, or confusing to the tr- to the uh, translators. So the New American Standard Bible, the NSB 95, um, says, "I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers." And I'm going to try to pause where there's a a comment in the text, right? The Legacy Standard Bible says, I thank my God, always making mention of you in my prayer. So I just change where the comma's at. So what, what, in other words, there's a question about what does, is Paul saying that he thanks his God always, or is he always making mention? Right? Small difference. The English Standard Bible says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Uh, the New King James Version says, I thank my God making mention 
of you always in my prayers. And the New English translation and the NIV, uh, New International Version says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayer. So, so there's slight, slight variances here. It helps us understand that, that their translators aren't quite sure where to place the word always. Um, and, and so I just mentioned this to say that use your English Bible in various translations, good translations can help you see what might be going on in the text. But, but while we may not know exactly the details of what Paul intended, his readers did, but we struggle to understand it, the broad contours of what Paul taught are very clear to us. They're very clear. And what are the broad contours of his thought? This, this verse tells us that Paul regularly gave thanks to God when he mentioned Philemon in his prayers. That, that's what he's wanting Philemon to come away with. That he is regularly giving thanks to God when he mentions Philemon in his prayers. Paul routinely gave thanks for Philemon. This isn't just something, uh, this isn't just flattery. This isn't just mentioning at one time during this, uh, where, he, where he prayed for Philemon right before he wrote the letter so he could, he could say he prayed. No, he is doing this on a regular pattern, as a regular habit. That Paul was a man of prayers without question. Paul lived authentically, setting a holy standard for others to follow as he followed Christ. He wasn't perfect, but he, he was above reproach. He set a standard that others could follow. Jesus Christ himself prayed frequently. We see that in all the Gospels. And Paul followed Christ's example. And through the Holy Spirit, Paul commands believers to follow his examples. In First, First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Well, well how, how could he pray without ceasing? When you have to eat, you have to get dressed, you have to sleep. How can you pray without ceasing? Well, as uh, Pastor John MacArthur explains, without ceasing uh, means constant, but it defines prayer not as some perpetual activity of kneeling and interceding, but as a way of life marked by a continual attitude of prayer. It, it, it's, that, it's that no matter what you're doing, if you're awake, you are living in an attitude of prayer, taking things to the Lord, asking for His help with whatever you are doing. And that, that's what the Lord calls us to. And, and Paul tried to model that. Thus, whether Paul is always thanking God when he making mention of Philemon or whether he is always making mention of Philemon when he's thanking God, we know him to be a man of prayer. And in these prayers, he gave God thanks for Philemon. Now, to give thanks is an expression of appreciation and gratitude for something somebody has done for you, or even something they have done for somebody else, which is which is the case here. Paul is no stranger to giving thanks, and he does so repeatedly in Scripture. And I want to read I want to read to you verses that that were of Scripture where Paul talks about how regularly he not only prayed but gave thanks, and he, he incorporates these into his letters frequently. I'll just, just listen as I read along. Romans 1, verses 8 to 10. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit and preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Then in Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
in the Lord Jesus, which exist among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians 1, verses 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Colossians 1, verses 3 and 4. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. First Thessalonians verse one, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly buried in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and Father, of our God and Father. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to, to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Second Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. In all these scriptures, Paul tells us that he is praying. And when he prays, he gives thanks. And he's giving thanks for the work of God in the lives of those to whom he is writing. But there is a connection between thanksgiving and the worship of God. Thanksgiving to God is worship of God. And notice that Paul here isn't giving thanks to Philemon or thanks to anybody he's writing. He's giving thanks to God. It's an act of worship. Thanksgiving to God is worship unto God. And this is one of the reasons why we are told to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Philippians, Philippians 2.14. Right? That's a very hard verse to apply, but very important because of, of Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving, giving of thanks connection with worship of God. The, the positive side of that negative command, the negative command is do all things without grumbling and complaining. The positive side of that command is to do all things with thanksgiving to God. In other words, do all things as an act of worship to God. So giving the thanks to God is a characteristic of all true believers. And, and we need to grow in this because it's so easy for us to complain. And, and that it's so easy for us to complain shows the, the existing and ongoing struggle that we have against sin. Right? That we're to do all things without complaining. We're to do all things with giving thanks. And, and Paul lived this out. And that's why he gave thanks. He wanted to worship God for God's work in Philemon's life or Timothy's life or to who, in whoever's life that he was writing to. So again, let's think about how, to, how, how this applies. We're talking about living, living our, our life with, with a way that to, to really multiply thanksgiving to God. To live in a way where thanksgiving to God is multiplied. Well, first we need to live with a mindset to always give thanks to God. So what is your prayer life like? Right? Prayer is an all is a large word. It has many components to it, many, many aspects to it. There's praise. There's adoration. There's uh, um, uh, intercession, request for others. But part of prayer is thanksgiving. Do you spend time in your prayer giving thanks to God for what he has done for you, what he has given you, the way that he's answered prayer for you? 
But when you pray for others, and you are to pray for one another, Scripture wants us to do that. Pray for one another. It's a command of Scripture. It's one of the, it's one of the, what I call the one another commands that you find in Scripture to pray for one another. When you pray for one another, that's not just intercession. It includes that, but it's not just that. But when you pray for one another, do you pause to give thanks to God for God's work in that person's life? As you see them grow in Christ, as you see steps of obedience, as you see them walking in the truth, or as you see them ministering to others, like when you see somebody that that ministers to somebody else and it really encourages that person's heart or meets a pressing need, right? It's not a time for jealousy. Oh, I wish I would have done that, right? It's a time to give thanks to God. God, thank you for putting that person in his or her life to meet that need. That's your work. You get the glory. So we really need to think think about that. And while we're talking about prayer, let me just add this. You know, the men just just finished a a, a, a whole study on prayer. Um, so we have a lot to apply, right? being doers of the word. But think about this: if the apostle Paul found a time to pray, time to give thanks to God for His work in others, then there's no excuse for you or for me. None of us have the workload of the Apostle Paul. None of us have the responsibility of the Apostle Paul. Think of all the Christians, that he, that people that he won to Christ and personally discipled. Think of all the churches that he taught. Think of all the churches that he had a burden for, that he knew of the dangers. He knew what they were facing. Paul, if anybody had an excuse to say, well, I didn't have time to pray for you, it was Paul. But what does Paul repeatedly do in all his letters? I've been praying for you. I've been repeatedly praying for you. I'm giving thanks for God's work in you. Right? So Paul had a, had a tremendous workload. And yet he had a tremendous prayer life. As one commentator said, uh, he concluded, he said, Paul must have had an extensive prayer list. And that was the day before prayer apps. Right? So I don't know if he wrote down these names or he memorized them. I don't know how he kept track of them, but he did. Right? He had an extensive prayer list and presumably spent Sometime each day, naming naming before God in all his churches, colleagues and supporters, he would pray for them by name. Right? He just didn't say, "God, you know, God bless all the Christians in Colossae." Right? He might have prayed that occasionally, but there's many of them that he prayed. He knew personally, and he prayed for them by name. Right? So we need to follow his example. Right? After all, we're following the the example of Christ, who prayed for his disciples, and by extension for us. We see that in John 17. So live with a mindset to always give thanks to God, right? In your prayers, let that fuel part of your prayers. But also live with a mindset to be the cause for others to give thanks to God. Are you living your life in such a way that others will look at you and give thanks to God? Now, you could easily misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying... Go grab the glory. I'm not saying put attention on yourself. You want to live for God. This is not self-promotion. This is God promotion. Living in a way where others give thanks to God for what you have done. Or your, your obedience to the truth in your own life. As they see you grow in the truth. So as, as you um, live your life, think about ways or orient your life in a way where you're living in obedience to the truth, you're, you're serving, as we'll see, we'll talk about faith and love in a moment, 
where faith and love uh, is, is coming, flowing out of your life so that others are giving thanks to God for his work in and through you. Again, this isn't self-promotion. This is God promotion. We, we increase the worship of God when we give people an occasion to, to give God thanks for what he's doing in our lives. So seek to multiply thanksgiving to God in your life, in your own prayers and by your life uh, through the prayers of others. Well, let's move on to see the, the third commitment that enables you to live a Christ-oriented life. And, and we see this from verse 5. And that is to live your life so that you are widely known for your love and faith. Live your life so that you're widely known for your love and your faith. Verse 5 uh, introduces us to the reason for the Apostle Paul's thanksgiving to God. Uh, namely, Paul, uh, Philemon's love and faith. I'll just read it to you. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Paul had heard about Philemon. This isn't the gossip line, but it works much like it. Paul had heard. This is good news. This isn't bad news. Now, Paul tells Philemon that. I hear. I hear about what you're doing. I hear of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward the saints. And since Paul is likely in, imprisoned in Rome, and Philemon lives in Colossae, to the best we understand it, that's a thousand miles. Right? So a thousand miles is, is a distance that news had to travel. But, but the way that Paul phrases this when he says, I hear of your love, it, it is in the present tense. It's not that just he heard one time or he heard one or two. This is something that, was, that he was hearing repeatedly about Philemon. It was part of Philemon's character. First, um, or if I could back up and just say, well, how would Paul, given the distance uh, between them, have heard about Philemon? Well, let's consider some things. First, consider Onesimus himself. Onesimus knew Philemon. Right? Now, it had been several years since Onesimus was there, since he ran away from Philemon. But Onesimus knew Philemon. And he knew Philemon as a believer. And I'm sure that, that Onesimus, who wasn't a believer when he ran away, looked at Philemon's life with, with a strange curiosity that much of what Philemon did didn't make any sense to him at all. But it all made sense to, to Onesimus now that he was a believer. So once Onesimus became a, a believer in Christ, and as Paul was discipling, he began to understand what Philemon was doing. And he could give testimony to Paul of Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the saints, love for the brethren. Also notice that in verse 23 of the letter of Philemon, tells us that Epaphras was a fellow prisoner with Paul. So again, this is another source of information. How did Paul hear about Philemon? Well, part of it is through Epaphras. We know that Epaphras was from the church in Colossae. He's one of their number. Uh, we're, we're told that in, in, uh, in the letter of, Colossian, of Colossians. So, so Epaphras would be quite familiar with Philemon's faith and love as well. And there's also evidence that there's quite a bit of information flowing between the churches. So, so um, as we talk about Philemon's love, it, it probably extended well beyond his local church so that other churches had heard about it and were, were commending Philemon to Paul and giving thanks to God for what Philemon was doing. Now notice the, the two things that Paul had heard about Philemon that he mentions here. His faith and his love, or in the order Paul does it, his love and his faith. 
Paul tells Philemon, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I just want to make some observations about the text. First of all, that Paul mentions love first is significant because when Paul uses the words faith and love together, he almost always uses faith and love, but here he uses love first. And why does he do that? Probably to emphasize that. Because Philemon would need to, to grow in love. And Paul's wanting to emphasize Philemon's love for the brethren. And so he brings love forward in that normal the way he normally uses the phrase. Uh, this, and this change just helps us to, to see Paul's emphasis on, on love. Because, I, I, I mean, Philemon would need love to exercise an extreme love of the brethren in order to forgive Onesimus and receive him as a brother in Christ. Another observation from the way that Paul wrote this that we need to make is the relationship of love and faith to Jesus Christ and to the saints. We can easily understand how love and faith relate to Jesus Christ. So if you just read the first part of verse 5, he goes, because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus, you, you think nothing of it. It's pretty, perfectly natural. If you're a believer in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you love Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ, you have faith in Jesus Christ. These things flow together. But it, but it gets a little odd the way that Paul puts it when we continue that. I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now we can understand how there could be love exercised toward the saints. But faith toward the saints? That's a little unusual. And it's caused uh, uh, commentators and pastors to wrestle with. What exactly did Paul mean? And, and the best explanation is that Paul is using what a Hebrew grammar technique called chiasis. Uh, a chiasmus, to, in order to emphasize something. And a chiasmus takes the first and the last part, and those are aligned. And in the center part, the center two parts are aligned and go together, therefore bringing emphasis to what's in the center. And some of the chiasmus in the Old Testament, which are, are legitimately there, bring are quite complicated and, and quite large. This one's quite short and compressed, um, if that's what Paul is doing. And and what I mean by explaining that is that, he, that Paul might be using love with the saints, those are your two outside boundaries, then faith in Jesus Christ as the two inside to emphasize that faith in Christ leads to love of the saints. And so that's, that's the view that many commentators take. It may not be the only solution, but it's the one that seems to make the best sense. Although the chiasmus is uh, it's compressed, so it's, uh, you know, you don't want to, um, I, I wouldn't insist on someone taking that view, that, that view. But whether Paul is is using a chiasmus or not, it makes sense to associate both the to associate faith with the Lord Jesus Christ and love being expressed toward the saints. And yet, while I say that, also keep in mind that the love of the saints is called a work of faith. Right? So the labor of love is a work of faith. So. So it's not that faith is is um, is not connected with the love of the saints. It is. So you can make a case for that as well. But let's talk a minute about the significance of Paul hearing of Philemon's, of Philemon's faith toward the Lord Jesus. And then we'll talk about uh, the love in a minute. That phrase, the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus. Now, we know from this letter that Paul was the instrument of salvation, the instrument of communicating the gospel to Philemon. So what Paul is talking about here is not just Philemon's initial faith in Christ, because he already knew about that. He didn't have to hear about that. He knew about that. So 
what Paul is referring to here is a faith in the Lord Jesus that he hears about. How do you hear about faith? Because faith leads to actions. Part of those actions are love, but here Paul is emphasizing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. So Philemon, Philemon was living in such a way where his life was a living testimony to the gospel. Right? However he lived. He proclaimed Christ and how he lived and in what he said. Again, we don't know much details about his ministry there. Uh, very few at all. But however he lived, it was known that he was a follower of Christ and, and he made that obvious. Not in an ostentatious way, or not in a way that, that made that, that put attention on to Philemon, but in a way that put attention on Jesus Christ. Okay? So I think what you see here is Philemon emulating the life of Paul. I read to you earlier, Galatians 2.20. Right? I'll read it again. Because I think Philemon's life uh, emulated what Paul wanted him to do. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Philemon lived for Christ, and that was obvious and well-known to those who knew Philemon or knew his life. And that was pressed upon him. Whatever sacrifices he made, whatever ministries he did, whatever evangelism he did, the stances he took, uh, hosting the church in his house, all of these were acts of faith that um, gave glory to God. But how did Paul hear about Philemon's love? Philemon's love. Well, Philemon loved the Lord Jesus, but he also loved the saints. In fact, those two cannot be separated together, though many today who claim to be Christians today can say, well, I love Jesus, but I sure don't love his church uh, because they've been hurt and, and there have been a lot of failings with local churches, let's be honest. The churches have let uh, people down and hurt people, either leadership or the people within the church. We, we are imperfect. But there is a strong connection between the love of Jesus Christ and the love of the saints. And, and keep in mind, this word love here is the familiar term agape. This is sacrificial love. This isn't a cheap love. This isn't a, a love of feelings. You, you do something when you feel like it. This is a sacrificial love. This is 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, uh, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love this is. That's the kind of love that Paul had heard about, from, of, about Philemon, that Philemon was exercising toward the saints. As John MacArthur explains, agape love is, is the love of will and choice, of self-sacrifice and humility. It's the kind of love that, that willingly and intentionally makes sacrifices on behalf of others. You, you sacrifice something or give up of time or money or resources of energy or whatever in order to benefit another. That, that's, that's what God does. When God loves us, he exercises that kind of love. When, when scripture says God is love, that's the kind of love he is. And we know that love is a fruit of the Spirit. So if someone doesn't have love, first love for God, but then also love for the brethren, then how can you say the Holy Spirit resides within them? 
So love, then, love of the brethren becomes a, a, a proof positive test that shows whether or not we really are genuinely saved and regenerate. And the, and the Word of God uh, reinforces this. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So there's no room for Christians, genuine Christians, to say they love Christ and they don't love the church. Does the church get difficult to love? Absolutely. We're all a bunch of sinners in transformation to the glory of God. But we must never abandon the love of the brethren. And and Philemon is a perfect example of this. So Philemon loved the brethren. In fact, he calls the brethren here saints. Look at that word. He loved the saints. His love of the saints. In fact, it says love for the saints. Um, Paul had heard about Philemon's love for the saints. And the word saints here, just to be clear, is not used in the Roman Catholic sense. In the Roman Catholic sense, a saint is someone who who the Catholic Church um, confirms is actually in heaven. And that, that confirmation is usually done by, by some so-called miracles done here on earth. And then the Catholic Church says, oh yes, they've made it to heaven and now we can call them a saint. Right? The Bible doesn't use the word saint in that way. Right? Saints are those who are following Christ, who have been born again by God. They are Christians. All Christians, genuine Christians, are saints. The word saint is related to the word for holy. Christians are holy because they are now children of the Holy One. Right? They are made to be holy in a, in a legal sense through faith in Jesus Christ as he justifies them. But they are also called to be holy in a practical sense. Uh, in the sense that Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 1. I'll just read that to you. 1 Peter 1.14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So Paul uses the term saints not to, like, to whitewash over the difficulties and the struggles that Christians have, Right? But he's using the term saints to remind them. He calls them saints to remind them of their ultimate calling and their ultimate destiny. You will be transformed. You will be all purified. Right? That's the only way that, that the Lord Jesus can have fellowship and eternity in heaven with you is if sin is completely removed uh, from you and within you. So bringing this back to Philemon verse 5, we see that Paul had heard about Philemon's love for other Christians. And this would certainly include love for the brethren within Philemon's own church, the ones who met in his house. Um, but it also includes Philemon's love for brothers and sisters in other places. You know, there were these traveling, traveling evangelists, uh, those like, like Tychicus and, and Titus. And as they travel around, they would need a place to stay. Right? So as they stayed with believers in the various cities they went to, word got around. Right? So this is had in part how how word got around that Philemon is a man who exercised love, a practical love, a sacrificial love towards the saints. So Philemon was was known for taking care of people, whether those were physical needs, shelter, clothing, food, whatever it was, but or protection. But Philemon may have also had a ministry of encouragement and counseling, a spiritual ministry. And we can't really divide a, a, a clear line between these two because taking care of someone's physical needs is a spiritual act of worship and is a spiritual encouragement to them. Well, again, let's, let's think about how to apply this. What we're saying 
what we've what we've uh, read in Philemon verse five about to our own lives. Examine yourself. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Even in a group um, our size, there's bound to be people who who have some kind of public association with Christ, but are not born again. And so ask yourself, do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Not as some fact, but in the issue of trust. Do you trust him to forgive your sins when you die and, and go to God and God greets you at the, at the pearly gates and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Hey, your only legitimate answer is because of Christ. Not I, but Christ in me. If you can't make that legitimate claim, right? don't leave today without believing in Christ. I, I plead you on God's behalf, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be saved, your, your penalty for your sins forgiven, and that you might experience the peace of God in your own life. But for those of you who do profess Christ and are born again, ask yourself, is that publicly known? Sometimes as believers, we work really hard not to be noticed. Because we don't want to be noticed. We don't want to be put in the spotlight or, or we don't want to um, you know, be made fun of. That kind of attitude is, is shameful. It's shameful for us and it, and, it, and it brings shame on Christ. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. We are called not to be ashamed in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's tempting for us. Let's be honest and transparent. You're, you're tempted like everybody is tempted at times to, to be quiet about Christ. In, in a sense, we're all like little Peters, right? Are, are you a follower of Christ? Oh, oh, not me. I wasn't there. Not me. Right? Especially now with our companies changing and they're, they're going aggressively after the, the homosexual agenda. Not just, not just letting people do it, but requiring employees to affirm it. Right? Now, Wednesday, we heard a little bit about that in some, some local companies even in conservative Ohio. Generally conservative Ohio. Right? But these companies are national, so they're pushing this agenda nationally. Right? How, how, how is your faith in Christ known publicly? Again, not in a way to draw attention to yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. But in a way that if you have genuine faith in Christ and live credibly for him, it's going to be known. It, is that known? So that's an area where you just need to examine your life, confess your failures, and, and ask God for strength to do what is right, and he will help you. And, and another way to think about this is, and we'll say more about this next week, but do you love the saints? Okay? And you can say, yes, I love the saints. But, but think about it. Is that visible? Not in a way to draw attention to yourself. But is there, does there manifestations in your own life where there is sacrificial love on behalf of the saints, where you're not parading it, but other people notice? You can't help but notice, right? That even a person that you love, they're going to notice if nobody else. Is your love to the saints, your sacrificial love um, to the saints, visible? And, and again, I'll just emphasize that Christians can be very difficult to love. In a sense, we're all little hypocrites because we're all inconsistent with a biblical worldview. We're all in transformation. We're all in the process of being transformed to the image of Christ our Lord. But that's the very thing you need to the, the per, kind of person you need to love. You don't need to love the person who's easy to love. Anybody can do that, right? You need someone who's hard to love in your life. 
so that you'll depend upon God and be obedient to his word and apply it. That's what you need. That's not what we want. We want people that easy to love. And the ones that, you know, we can love and they'll love us back, right? That's what we want. But what God knows we need are people who are more difficult to love. Right? So we'll apply the word of God, exercise and grow in godly love towards the saints for the glory of God. I know some of these questions are, are, are penetrating questions if you ask them earnestly, but we ask them to help us live a Christ-oriented life. So at the end of your life, when you see Christ, either at your death, after your death, or when he returns, that, that he will tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. That, that when he separates the sheep and the goats, you're not going to be with the goats, you're going to be with the sheep, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. None of us do it perfectly. Only Christ does. Right? So he's not looking for perfection, but he's looking for growth. He's looking for faithfulness and growth in these things. So, beloved, our call as we look at the, at the example of Philemon is to live a Christ-oriented life. Live your life full of God's grace and peace. Live your life so that you're multiplying thanksgiving to God. Live your life so that you're widely known, that your faith for Christ and your love for the saints are widely known. And, and next week, we're going to look at the two remaining commitments, we, which we see in verses 6 and 7. But the Lord gives us this beautiful text, not just to teach us about, about forgiveness, the, the book of Philemon about forgiveness, and, but ultimately about a Christ-oriented life. Uh, time and time again, I've heard people say, you're never more like God than when you forgive. Forgiving requires faith in Christ, and the love of the brethren. Well, let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. And I just ask that you use these words, the text that we've read and dug into today, to do your work in us, transform us, grow our prayer lives, enrich in our prayer lives. Lord, help us to, to live lives full of your of your grace and peace, not trampling upon your grace, not presuming upon peace that we have with you, but using grace and peace as motivators unto holy living and righteous living, Christ-honoring living. And Lord God, help us to, to, to be thankful people and to give you thanks for your work in our lives and your work in other people's lives, to repeatedly give thanks, to live our lives in a with an attitude of thanksgiving, doing everything we do with thanksgiving to you. And Lord, I just pray that you help us to just to, to strengthen and deepen our faith in Christ, and that would be manifested through how we live to the world around us. And that our love for the brethren would be also resound from our lives for your glory. This is all about Christ. This isn't about us. Help us to live for Christ's sake. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.